Thank you. Uh, you really made my life sound exciting. And, uh, it's really good to be with you guys. You know, I think a lot of times when you hear a speaker you've ne never met before, there's kind of a, a bit of tension because you don't know if I'm going to put you to sleep, if I'm going to say crazy things, if my theology is different from yours. Um, who knows what God has in store? But too often, the speaker will come and just be a talking head. You have no idea where I came from. So I thought I would just start by greeting you and uh, showing you some pictures. Is the first slide up there? You good? I wanted to show you, this is my family. And I can't tell you how long it's been since I've spent the Labor Day at home. Almost any time there's an extended weekend, I'm off somewhere and I keep telling my wife, maybe this year I'll stay home. And she rolls her eyes and, and just seems like God has plans for me to be elsewhere. And so I'm thankful for a family that releases me on a regular basis. Um, that's my wife, Jeannie. That picture's about two years old. My oldest son, Noah, on top there is in driver's ed now. It's really freaking me out that he's going to drive my car soon. Um, so I've been thinking about maybe getting a horse for him or something so he doesn't... <laughs> And then uh, my daughter, Jordan, is number two, and then Elijah, number three, and then Zoe, number four. She's the apple of my eye, my little baby. And I got to tell you, um, Elijah is a football player. He's in his fifth season of tackle football. It's my favorite thing in the world to watch him play. And um, Sunday is a season opener, and I'm going to miss it. And so I'm just really sad, but it's worth it to be here with you guys. <laughs> I also want to um, show you... I don't know if, uh, is this thing, is it working? Am I doing something wrong? Can you just see if, uh, oh, there it goes, there it goes. Now I got lights. And no, there it goes. So that's my, that's my church, um, the people in my church. That picture was taken at our last retreat this past summer, at least with the people who bothered to show up in the designated spot. For the group picture, compliance is extremely low. But those are the faithful ones who actually came out and braved 90-degree heat to take an outdoor picture. Um, nobody wanted to be out there, least of all me. And so I, do, do we look happy? Um, and our church, my church, I just really have had such a joy over the last 17 years walking with these people. They understand the kingdom of God, uh, and I think by God's grace, they have learned not to be selfish with things. And so I, I think the way that I try to lead pushes that a lot, stretches them in uncomfortable ways, and they've stretched me back. And so it's just been such a joy. Uh, so many of my best friends come from that congregation, so it's been wonderful not to feel like I'm the pastor, you know, but I'm like friends with these people, and they're my life and my, my family. And so these are the people who sent me here and allowed me to come and I just really enjoy getting to meet your pastor. I don't think I've ever met um, an, another Asian guy named David Larry. And Larry David is one of my favorite comedians, so I, just, I even feel a little closer to him because of that. And I, I just sense something. And I was telling him and a number of other guys that we hung out together in San Diego recently. And I was starting to get really disillusioned at the caliber and the commitment of younger pastors today as I just hang around with a lot of them. And I was getting really sad and discouraged, thinking, where is the next generation going to find their spiritual leaders? And then I ran into these guys, and God just, in a big way, restored my hope for our generation. 
and made me feel like God is still very much alive and moving and he's winning the hearts of some visionary godly men and women who are going to really take care of his witness in the years to come. And so that, that's just been a joy for me. And that's why if you if were to ask, I'd come again. I just really want, and, and I'll be honest with you, I came to share God's word with you, but I think 90% of my reason for wanting to come out is just to hang out with him and spend some time just hanging out with my brother and just talk and, and hang out together and, and do life. And so that's been a real joy for me, growing in friendship with some of the younger pastors. And they're not that much younger. You know, I, I'm only like 29, and so it's not like I'm that much older than these guys. Um, and so anyway, that's enough about me and about him and all that. I want to bring the word of God to you. And uh, I really believe, just reading some of what he's writing on Facebook, listening to his testimony, that, that the, in every indication is that God is on the move here at Harvest Church. Would you guys agree with that? Do you, do, not everybody's included in that sense of the movement. Some are, just, are still waiting for God to grab their hearts. But for a good number of you, I bet you would sense that God is doing something here. He's on the move. And I, you wouldn't think you could pick that up from a Facebook post, but, you know, like when you read certain things, God really begins to show you a picture of what's happening, and it really gives me great excitement. I feel like you are building the, ch- the church of Jesus Christ here, that he's doing something here that will last for a very long time. And, you know, when we build the church together, in fact, when we create anything, we're really participating in what God does especially well, the work of creation, of taking nothing and producing something. This is something God does all the time. In fact, the first words of the Bible begin that way, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created. This is what he does. He takes nothing and he puts something beautiful where there wasn't anything before. And so when we do this work of building churches and families and careers and institutions, what we're doing is joining with him in something he emplaced deep in our heart, this impulse to create. And so I want to look at the story, the account of God creating the universe. But rather than giving just some dry theology, what I want to do is try to eke out of those verses some sense of the personality of God, what our God is like, and to understand from that how we ought then to be when we make things, when we make families, and when we make careers and businesses and churches and neighborhoods, wherever we're engaged in the work of creation, we ought to do it the way that our Heavenly Father, the great Creator, did it. So the name of the... the it's ironic that for, for a message completely revolving around the topic of creation... Such an uncreative title, but there it is. It's not something I'm strong at. I'll explain the picture to you a little later. You'll understand at the end of the message what that picture is all about, and I'll show you some other things related to that picture. You know, um, back in the 1600s, a German philosopher and mathematician named Gottfried Leibniz asked this question. It's a profound question. He said, why is there something rather than nothing? At first, you're like, what? A stupid sounding question. Till you really think about it, here's what he's saying. If there is no God, if there is no first cause, if everything is just here for whatever reason, why should anything exist? When's the last time you're just staring into space and all of a sudden, poof, something became right in front of you? 
That never happens. And so he reasoned, if there is no God, shouldn't the most natural state of things be that there is nothing? And what he was arguing is that the very existence of the universe demands some explanation. It begs the question, where did it come from? And if, how many of you have kids? Okay, all right. My tribe, my kind of people. I, I have four kids. So I love when people have families, big families. And when you have kids, it's not too long before they ask you, um, where did I come from? And the right answer is not the little brat store. I mean, the, the, the right answer is a little bit more uncomfortable than that. But the reason they ask, the reason everybody asks that question is because at a certain point, it absolutely matters how I explain that I exist. I mean, where did I come from? It's the most universal human question. And then we extend that to also ask, well, all right, never mind me. Where did all of this come from? We can describe it. We can explain rules about how it all works. But until you can at least address the question, where did it all come from? None of the rest of it means much, does it? What if we're just a software routine? What if this is just a dream in the mind of some great deity? And so you've got to come up with some answer. What does it all mean? And I know this sounds a little bit like a philosophy lecture or something. It's got a point. We're going somewhere, so don't worry. Um, if that is, in fact, one of the central questions of the human experience, then we, we, we also know that not everybody answers that question the same way. There may be some in this room who don't necessarily believe that we all came from God, that he made everything. But that is what I believe. And, you know, when you look at this verse, the, the verse with which the Bible begins, it doesn't gloss over that question, but, in fact, it begins at the most foundational beginning point. And what God says is, in the beginning, not in the beginning of the story, but just in the very beginning of everything that ever was, there was God. And when you first meet God, you meet him as one who creates something out of nothing. So that's your first introduction to God, is God creates stuff. He makes universes. He takes nothing, and then he puts something there. And that is something that is in our hearts. That's why it's hard for us to sit still and be neutral. We're always looking to stay moving, or we feel like something is wrong in our lives. Isn't that true? I mean, everybody who's single for long enough goes, well, maybe it's not such a bad idea to move on and find someone. And then after a while, you, you have enough movie nights out and you enough dinners, and you go, well, maybe we should have a, a couple rugrats. And, and then after a while, you're like, you know, I'm tired of working for the man. I want my own business. We don't know how to sit still because there's something in us that wants to keep making new things that don't yet exist. And I want to talk about how often... We engage in that kind of urge to make things and how God informs the way that we ought to exercise that. Because when we do build things, we are engaging the creative process, and God's creative process is incredibly instructive for us. So I'm going to look at some aspects of God's creation, and I think we'll have fun together. Is it okay to have fun in church? Yeah, I hope so, because otherwise I couldn't bear it. Um, so here are some aspects of God's creation, and there it goes. And the first is that God's creation is explosive. That's the best word I could come up with. Let me explain or unpack a little bit what I mean by that, okay? Look at this verse, Genesis 1.16. God made two great lights, 
the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And then almost in passing, he goes, oh, yeah, and he also made the stars. Just five simple words. He also made the stars. Do you realize how huge the impact, the consequence of those five words? I want you to think about the vastness of the universe. Our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, our sun, which is the center of everything. You guys get a lot more of it here than where I'm from. So the sun's always kind of in your face. That sun is just one of an estimated 200 billion stars in just our galaxy. Our galaxy is so large, it's like a pregnant woman's belly. She's in it, but she could see it. You know, it's like we could actually see the Milky Way from inside of it. That's how big it is. And this huge, uni- this huge galaxy, just our galaxy alone, takes 100,000 years to go from one end to the other at the speed of light. That's big. And yet the Milky Way is one of an estimated 125 billion galaxies. Now, psychologists have proven that for most people hearing that, there's absolutely no mental picture you could draw. You're just like, "Eh, 125 billion. It just sounds like words. The idea of it escapes 95% of the population. You can go, oh, that's a lot. You have no idea what we're talking about. It's a level of vastness that most people cannot retain their sanity and fully comprehend, contain how big that is. And here's the thing. If we try to explain the universe that we live in, and maybe there's more than just this one, okay? What's that for a Doctor Who episode? Maybe there's parallel universes, but just for this one alone, do you realize if we try to explain it just by saying God made us a home? It's too much house. It's too big. Why do we need all that? Why would it be possibly necessary for us to live in one tiny little belly button corner of a galaxy that takes 100,000 years to span at the speed of light? And then you go beyond that, there's 125 billion other galaxies that large or larger. What's the point of that? If you put man at the center and wonder why did God give us that, you're asking it the wrong way. Because the universe itself with all our telescopes and instruments is beaming back a very clear answer, something about the nature of God. And what I learned from the universe and the vastness of creation and the fact that God could talk about it with five little words. I also made some stars. Um, What it tells me is that there's something explosive about the way God makes stuff. He doesn't make the universe because it's necessary. He makes the universe because he loves making stuff. And once he got on his star phase, he just kind of kept going. And he just kept going and going and going until, oh my gosh, that's a, that's a lot of stars. These little guys right here. And there's just so much. I mean, we have had some wealthy people pass through our church. And, and, you know, like two kids. And I walk in the house, I'm like, Where's the other 18 refugee families that live here? It's immense. And that's kind of what our universe is like. You can't just explain a house that size by the needs of the little family living there. But it has to do with this explosive desire to make something spectacular. Whether you agree with that principle or not, the idea is you can find out a lot about someone by what they make. 
And the one thing I learned about God is he can't control himself when it comes to making. Once he gets going, he just makes and he makes and he makes and he makes. That divine spark to create, that urge or drive is almost irrepressible in God. And I believe because we are made in his image, he deposited that same drive in us. Here's what I've observed, though. That spark to create and to make, it fades as we get older. Maybe it's because of rejection, embarrassment, failure, accusation. Maybe you've had really bad experiences sticking your neck out trying to make something. And everyone's like, oh, nice try, but that sucks. You're really bad at making stuff. Maybe you had one of those moms who just couldn't stand watching you with cranes, like, oh, honey, you're going outside the lines here. Let mommy do it. And then she, you know, like, puts a perfect color, and you're like, I can't do that. I'm stupid. I stink. So maybe you've had experiences like that under somebody very controlling, repressive, so that every time you try to make stuff, it was never good enough. And after a while, you say, you know, what's the point? I mean, have you ever watched children with a box of crayons and blank paper? You know, when they're very young, they don't need any guidance. They just, you just set them on the floor. They go and look at the volume. Look how, look how sucky those pictures are. They suck. I mean, they, I'm sorry. I'm looking at them going, they, if people were anatomically that proportion, they would be frightening looking, wouldn't they? And yet, you know, the funny thing is they litter the floor with finished pictures and then they don't even care about them. It's not even about hanging them on a wall, giving them to grandparents, saving and preserving them. They're just making it and it doesn't matter if you burn them, they can make more. Because there seems to be in the heart of a child this irrepressible drive to just keep making stuff. They don't care if it's good or bad, they just can't stop themselves. And when you see little kids, but I've noticed something though. As my kids have gotten older, they don't draw as freely as they used to. They start asking questions like, Dad, what should I draw? I hate that question. I don't care. Draw whatever you want. It's going to stink anyway. (laughs) But, you know, here's the thing. I don't say that to them, okay? But what I'm thinking is, why does it matter what you draw? Just whatever comes across your mind, just draw it. But you know why they ask that? Because they only want to draw stuff they're good at drawing. Because now they're learning there's a standard... And I can't meet it unless it's a certain thing. And so we start limiting ourselves. We only do the things we're pretty assured we're going to do well in and get some praise for. And that's the sad journey of life, isn't it? Is that we take a lot of risk when we're younger because we're too dumb to know how bad we are. And we're just so celebrating this drive and capacity God put in us to make stuff that we're not afraid of the judgments of others or the potential for failure. We've just got to dance. You know what I mean? When I was younger, I danced a lot. I know it's hard to believe. I dressed like a, an engineer at Motorola, and I looked like a total nerd. But when I was younger, I was fun. And I could cut a rug, and I could dance. And I tried everything. I, I had the members-only jackets and the parachute pants. I tried breaking. Because when I was younger, I didn't care what people thought of me. I have now officiated probably like 50 weddings and I go to a lot of receptions and at every single one my wife's like come on let's dance I'm like you know just can't I want to so badly 
something in me. It's like, oh, come on now. I just want to. But you know what? I can't because I'm so aware of who I am and what I'm supposed to look like. And I can only dance at home where I don't care who sees me because I got to dance. You know what I'm saying? My children see me dance a lot. The rest of you will never see it because I have learned to repress and suppress this thing which God put in me that shouldn't care so much whether I succeed or fail, but I'm trying so desperately to say there's something deposited in here that has got to find its way out to the light of day. And the thing that saddens me about it is right now in this room, among people who wouldn't even consider themselves very artistic or creative, I will bet you God has deposited something in you that has been buried under layers of concrete and fear. I'll bet you in this room, God may have deposited an idea or a song or a book or a poem or a film or a new way of doing business, something that would shake the world up, something that would revolutionize the human experience. And it will never come out unless we realize that that desire is divine. That God put it in you so that it will come out of you. And I know why we don't take the chance. Because we're afraid of looking stupid. You, you know, some of you probably, I will bet you a million bucks is true of somebody here. Some of, some of you are writing rap songs all day long. You got little composition notebook, and you just write, you, you, you're the little junior Eminem, you, mm. And all day you're like, man, this stuff is dope, man. I, I swear, we could, if I could actually say it right, it, it would be, I'd be a billionaire. And then someone goes, what's that? And you're like, nothing, nothing. It's nothing. Half of you want so badly to show them. The other half is terrified. I don't want you to see I remember meeting this one guy, and we find out we're both avid amateur photographers. I, I'm going to just tell you, and I, I stink at taking pictures. But I am so enthusiastic about it that I more than make up for my lack of skill with my zeal. That's how I am with golf as well. I, I'm terrible, but I really, really am into it. But then, you know, he, we both ended up going to the same gathering in a really beautiful place, and he's like, bring your camera. And then we started shooting stuff, and bald eagles flying around, landing on these trees, and I'm like shooting like crazy. He goes, hey, let's compare pictures. And I immediately, I sensed it. Uh-uh, I don't, actually, it was, the lighting was kind of bad. I don't know what happened when I was flying, but my lens is all kind of like weird, and maybe I was low battery, but I'm starting to already make excuses because I had peeked at his computer screen, and his pictures are really good. And mine were the opposite of really good compared to his. Are you feeling me? God put this in you. He deposited in you. And just like a bank, what he deposits, he wants some return on. But we let fear get the better of us, and we suppress that. And we rob the world of something which God intended to give it through us. And don't get the wrong idea. I'm not just talking about religious stuff. It may be a life-changing way to run a business. A game changer. Some new thing which will change everything. But if you don't take the risk, if you don't trust God, I don't know that we'll ever see what's in there. So, 
Be like your father. Let it burst out of you. Let me give you another aspect of the creative process of God. It's imaginative. That's a very unimaginative way to say there's so much diversity in what God made. Check out Genesis. Well, first of all, check out that thing. What is that? Who makes something like that? Right? The only use this animal has is to give NBC a logo. You can't eat the thing. When's the last time you had peacock stew? Right? Nobody eats these things. What are they for? Yeah, you can get some feathers and make some decorations, but really... This isn't about being necessary. God didn't make the peacock because there was a desperate shortage of peacock meat in the world. He just made something because he's like, wouldn't it be cool if I did this? How else do you explain that? A bright blue bird with eyes all over its butt. (laughs) This is the nature of God, right? So look what it says. And God said... Let the earth bring forth every kind of animal, livestock, small animals, and wildlife. And so it was. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to reproduce more of its own kind. And God, seeing all that diversity and imagination, saw it and said that it was good. That really reveals something to me about God, because when I think about it, how many kinds of deer should there be in the world? Right? Two. One for the little kids to go, ah, and the other for, you know, certain kinds of people to put on a hat and kill and eat. We don't need like 80 different kinds of deer, and yet God seems to rejoice in creating all kinds of diversity. And if you're a hardcore evolutionist, you'll just say that's just the process of evolution. But even across species that aren't directly related, you see so much diversity, so much overlap. And there's something beautiful about the way that God, when he gets to making stuff, doesn't just make the same flavor over and over and over. Let me give you some examples, okay? Everyone knows what that is, right? Tell me what it is. A little quiz. I'm I'm just an IQ test for Central Florida. You you guys even got the species. That's going a little too far. It's a bird, okay? That's the universal symbol for bird. Any kid in the world draws that, and they go, that's a bird. It actually doesn't look that much like a bird, but you right away know. This is what we see when we think bird. This is what God sees when he, he started making birds. He's like, oh, man, so many possibilities. If I just smash the face into one of them, you get an owl. If I pull the neck out and give it hair, you get the ostrich. How about give it stubby little wings so the dumb thing can't even fly when it's got to live in snow? And then uh, that bottom, the vulture, that's unacceptable. That's so unfortunate. Have you ever seen a hummingbird in real life and thought it was a gigantic insect and it freaked you out? I mean, I saw one in California two weeks ago. I was like, that's a ginormous bug and somebody's like idiot that's a hummingbird that's a bird who who can imagine a bird that flies that fast it hovers in the air like an insect this is god just on one little thing he's making birds what's this isn't it amazing you just know that's a dog right here's what god sees when he starts making dogs 
number six is inexcusable. That, that shouldn't happen. Now, of course, a lot of this is us messing around with breeding, right? It is, okay? I just throw in it for the ladies. I don't care about flowers. There's lots of different flowers. <laughs> lots of different flowers. Okay. Bug. Isn't that a bug? This is what God sees when he's making bugs. Let me just give you some warm, warm, cheerful thoughts. See that thing in the upper right corner? There are probably about 100,000 of those on you right now. They have subdivisions, highways. They are burrowing in and creating wonderful backyard barbecues for Labor Day on your skin cells. You go home to sleep at night that cushy 600 thread count Egyptian cotton sheet you're landing on is home to millions, perhaps, of these guys. They are everywhere. You can't get away from bugs. And the variety is astounding. Anybody ever been to Africa? <laughs> you think you know bugs till you go there and like, oh, Lord. We don't even know what bugs are in America. That's a bug. I'm like, going to the bathroom and looking down there. There's a scarab beetle going, what's up, player? Which one? And it's just immense looking thing. It's so gross. I saw stuff that I'm like, this could be alien. I don't think I've ever seen anything that has a head on one side and a head on the other side. It's unbelievable the stuff you see overseas. What's this one, everybody? It's a person, a face. Now, how many ways can you mix up two eyes, a nose, a mouth, a couple ears? You think that at some point everyone's going to start looking just like somebody else out there, right? Look at the diversity with just those few parts. Look at how many different kinds of faces there are. Just look around this room at the goofy permutations God dreamt up in this church alone. Look around. You're like, wow. He really went all out with you, huh? I mean, just look at your neighbor and say, wow, I, I can't even match. You're very special. Just tell your neighbor, there's nobody I've ever seen that looks like you. It's very special. What I'm trying to get at is, I think that sameness bores God the same way it bores us. And yet somewhere in the process of growing up, even in the church, there seems to be such a strong societal push towards sameness, we get trained by it. I have teenagers. I have a teenage daughter. And even though she thinks she is so radically different, her desperate desires to be just like everyone else. She wants to be accepted. She can't stand being excluded. And yes, she, she loves... Uh, what, what's the name of that, that group? One Direction? Good Lord, I'm so sick of One Direction. We sent her to the concert for her eighth grade graduation. I thought the girl was going to pop a blood vessel. I took her to Europe with me this past April. Um, I did some ministry out there, and we went to London. She had to eat at a place called Nando's. Why? Because One Direction loves eating there. She desperately thinks she's so cool and unique for liking One Direction, but she only likes people who like One Direction. What's that other British boy band? The, what are they called? The Wanted. Do you know this? There's another group. I don't know if they're British enough, but she hates The Wanted because they're the anti-One Direction. 
They're the bizarro One Direction. And if you like them, then you can't like her. It's funny how we think we're so unique, but that insecure yearning of our heart is to, in fact, be indistinguishable from most other people. I think God loves the fact that there is nobody else like you. That wasn't some accident. He made it like that on purpose. I mean, I'm sorry to say all the rest of you will never be this fine. I, this was given just to me. I'm stewarding it the best I can. I, it's a huge responsibility. But this is me. He just made one. And there's just this one guy. The rest of you will just have to be you. I'm sorry. It's, I, I know it's hard to deal with. But that's your whole life sentence is you got to be you. Because he did that on purpose. Can you believe it? Sometimes I go, I mean, seriously, God, you, there's a guy in my church who's 6'4". He hates basketball. I'm, that just, there's something so offensive and not right about that. I like me, but couldn't you at least give me six of those wasted inches, you know, make him short like me since he hates it anyway. But you've got to reconcile at some point with the fact that you are who you are. You could do certain things, you know, um, to change some of your appearance and all that. But at the end, there is a core essence of you that will never go away. And it's part of the design of God for you. And the diversity of it thrills God. Let me just make one further case. I want you to look at this slide here. Do you realize that on this earth, there are 298 different kinds of squid? Can you explain to me why that's necessary? Why do we need 298 kinds of squid? Last time I checked, we only need the one kind, the kind we eat. And then, like, who cares? And most of them live at the depths of the sea. Only certain guys like James Cameron will ever see them in real life. So who are they for? Why do you, how do you explain their existence? I explain it this way. God, for a while, was into squid, and he just made every kind of squid his mind could think of, and then he moved on to something else. And, and the whole point of that is there is this divine imagination where you can't explain everything by necessity and function alone. There seems to be just a sense in which God goes, that's different. And, you know, it's so goofy, it's weird. It doesn't really have a function or a purpose. It just makes me happy that it's not like the one next to it. It makes him happy to see diversity. I think that's something incredibly important for us to remember. And there's this imagination that children have that is dying in all of us that has to be recaptured and redeemed by God. And the leaders of this church and every church have as one of their central responsibilities the task of creating a culture where it's safe to use your divine imagination. Where you're not punished for trying different things because, hey, you know, come on, dude, we don't do that stuff here. I had a girl who at one point wanted to try um, interpretive dance type stuff at our church. It's so not our culture. It's so not me, okay? <laughs> I dance, but not that, that kind of this stuff, you know? Like, and so she wanted to try it, and everyone was like, all right, go for it. And she tried it, and it just didn't work. And she's like, I felt stupid doing it, too. I, but, but the point was she got to try it. It didn't work out, 
But that was okay because she wouldn't have known for sure had she not tried. There are other things we've tried that I thought for sure wouldn't work, and they work great, just great. I'm involved in ministry in um, a very rough neighborhood in Chicago. Just hung out with those guys um, for about half a day two days ago. I mean, this is straight-up hardcore gangbangers. And right now, Chicago, I think, recently got the dubious distinction of being one of the most dangerous cities in the world. A lot of violence. I, it's the kind of neighborhood where I get nervous pulling up just to park my car. I, guys eyeballing me. But I've become part of this, involved these guys, and one of the ministries they're doing is something called Streetlights. It's a Streetlights project. These guys recaptured this divine imagination, and they've taken the words of the ESV Bible, whole books at a time, and they set them to hip-hop tracks, and they got professional Christian hip-hop artists to rap the word of God from the ESV verbatim, but set to a hip-hop beat, and kids will listen to this. And they're becoming in droves, biblically literate, and it's sneaking up on them. They're just quoting Isaiah and just break it down. Um, you know, they're doing all this. And it's, I'm like, hey, this is like the ESV. It's not even the friendliest translation. I thought maybe they would try, you know, like the NLT or something, but they're using the ESV. And without changing a single word, they're using their divine imagination to bring the word of God to kids who are most of them functionally illiterate and will be bored to death of me reading the Bible to them. That's the power of God and the power of imagination. Right, before I lose all of you, let me move on here. Uh, a third thing here is that God's creation is abundant. This is not about diversity. This has to do with amount, right? This has, it's similar to explosive, except we're not just talking about square footage. We're talking about crowds, man. God said, let the waters teem. Oh, these, these words give you such a visual. Teem with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters stormed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. What I get from that is that God seems to like crowds. God seems to enjoy the sounds, the sights, the smells, the, the textures of lots of living things literally swarming and writhing all over each other. You, you know, I, I'm in a weird way, like I'm kind of an anal retentive neat freak in most things, but one of the things that's kind of out of character for me is I love open air markets in the third world. I love walking down a place and suddenly being accosted by the smell of feces and urine. You're like, wow, what is that? And just this humanity just rubbing up on each other. And it's so crowded. And it's so noisy. For some reason, I love that. I can't explain it. Psychiatrists would probably have a field day trying to figure me out. But for some reason, that excites me. And I've come to realize that I think that is in part because God seems to have deposited that in me. It's not something that's ex explainable by my personality. I really believe that God loves to see the earth teem with life. You know, uh, a number of years ago, um, I was traveling 
in West Africa, and I landed in the, the capital city of Accra in, in the nation of Ghana. And our driver was taking us to the second largest city called Kumasi. And to get there, you have to drive through a rainforest. And we were driving through it at night. It was bizarre, guys. I mean, we're driving in the middle of nowhere. You just see trees and stuff. And all of a sudden, there's two or three people walking down the road with a bucket on their head. In the middle of the night, you're like, oh, that's just normal. You know, like it's so crazy. In the middle of this thick forest, there's people just walking, going to the market. They're walking through the night six hours to get to the market and sell their goods. And the driver all of a sudden pulls over. He goes, I just want to show you something. And he pulls over, and he shuts the engine off, turns off the radio, and then he starts rolling down the windows. And it was the most incredible experience. I mean, just, just to my right, outside of me, you go, it sounds like that. You're like, what is that? And it's so noisy. And it stressed me out so badly. I just kept thinking, if he dropped me off here, I would die. It's just kind of overwhelming thinking about how much living stuff is out there. You hear it everywhere. I mean, we just parked in one little corner, and you hear stuff slithering along the dry leaves. You, you hear things scratching, walking. It's overwhelming. Just the sheer quantity of bug life in the forest would amaze you. They would devour your carcass in less than 24 hours. There's nothing but bones left. If you die, it's just so amazing. And as I'm out there, I'm thinking, I'll bet you that God hangs out here a lot. I'll bet you that when God wants to walk through the earth in spirit, he especially likes the rainforest. I'll bet you that really delights his spirit. It reveals in God this generosity of spirit where he's not intimidated by the sheer needs of multitudes. Who's responsible for feeding all of them? The Bible tells us it's God's job to make sure all those things don't die and putrefy at once. Everything's got to eat something, and they all seem to be eating just fine because they're scaring me and making noise all night long. God looks at the sheer mass of living creatures and the needs they bring with them. Instead of being intimidated or despaired over it, he goes, you know what, that's awesome. I'm going to take care of all of them. Bring it on. God seems to delight in the abundance of life on this planet. I don't think God's interested in population control. I think that's our problem. I think God is interested in population explosions. And we might argue, hey, don't you know there's a shortage of resources? No, there isn't. There is no shortage of resources. Just a shortage of divine generosity. That's all we're short of. We're short of sharing. We suck at sharing. You, you know, we're in a drought in the Midwest, just like the, most, much of the rest of the country. And the other day, I was watering my flowers, and 35 minutes in, with my forearm aching from the strain of pulling the trigger on my hose gun, something just grabbed a hold of me. What I realized was, it is so wrong for me to sit here paying money, watering my plants when there's people who can't drink this water. And I can't explain it. I don't think it was a psychological thing. It was a divine thing. I got so overcome with grief over it that my flowers are all dying right now. And I know my neighbors are looking as they walk past, walking the dogs like, 
another Adam's family moved in. We condemned Lot pretty soon. But I can't, I just, I'm so paralyzed now. I can't water my grass anymore. I can't water, so I pray for rain because that's the only time that the vegetation on my lot's going to see any moisture because I realize that there's something wrong with me watering my plants while others die of thirst. And so it's really renewed my zeal for getting involved in providing clean water. And next month, I'm flying to Bolivia to get involved in a project just like that. And it's part of the way I think God is working in my life is he's using certain little triggers to reveal himself to my heart and then giving me the courage to venture out and actually do something in response to him. That is a wonderful process by which we grow spiritually. And I think what we see is there isn't a shortage of land and all that. If you've ever seen East Texas... There is no shortage of land in this world. Have you ever been to Australia? Five cities and this massive empty lot. (laughs) There is so much abundance in the world. Our main task, I think, when it comes to that, is to share the generous heart of God and learn how to share it better. Not to be overcome by the fact that, oh, we can't have a benevolence program because the minute we start giving money to the poor in our community, they're going to all come hat in hand and storm down the doors. It'll be too much. Too much for who? Too much for us or too much for God? Because when God looks out at the world and sees all of it, he ascribes value to every living being, and he's delighting in how many of us there are. And I don't think he likes some of us Eating until we go, oh, I can't possibly eat anymore. How can I exercise to get rid of some of this too much food? And others are going, oh, I'm so hungry. I don't think that makes God happy. I think it disturbs him as much as it disturbs us when we let ourselves think about it very deeply. And so part of what we learn in creation is that we should not try to control and manage and suppress, but we should tackle the sheer abundance of life, and the very massive need all that represents and believe that God's big enough to care for everything. I really believe that every time we get involved in any work that adds a greater life, we're participating in the spirit and the heart of God. He says, my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. That was one of the mission statements of Jesus Christ. And I believe when we get involved in that kind of work, tackling the immensity of the need, trusting God, it deeply, deeply pleases him. Do you have energy for one last one? You ready? This is the last one. God's creation is beautiful. I mean, I brought visual aid for you just to (laughs) help you see. What do you think? Huh? So God's creation is beautiful. Look what it says here. When he began, the earth was what? It was empty. It was a formless mask, mass cloaked in darkness, and the Spirit of God was hovering over its surface. And I picture him the way that Michelangelo might have walked around the edges of a large block of marble going, oh, something's in there. I'm going to set it free. I, it's, it's a guy going like this or there's something in there and he could see it i feel like the spirit of god was hovering over this empty dark formless mass this void 
And out of it emerged something amazing. You know, I think very few of us would argue that God is a good engineer. Before, before entering ministry, I was pursuing a doctorate in genetic engineering down at, um, or from here, it'd be up at Emory in Atlanta. And I really enjoyed those studies. I feel like God used that year to pull back the curtain and show me how everything works molecularly. And I'm like, man, God, you are an amazing engineer. I mean, everything just works. The systems that God designed, we are learning now in science how to mimic nature in our systems. That's one of the biggest new fields is we're not that clever. We just look at how God made everything. We might learn a thing or two about design. And it's happening. Have you ever seen those robots that they're trying to make walk and stuff? All we're doing is trying to make machines that act like the stuff God already made walking around everywhere. There's that one with six legs. It's just kind of creepy looking. It's supposed to carry weapons and munitions, and it walks up the hill, and it's got these legs, and these guys keep pushing it, and it keeps getting back up, and it's very disturbing. If you watch the video on YouTube, it, it really disturbs me when I see it. But that's what we're trying to do. And it's like God makes stuff that works well. But here's the other thing I'm noticing about God. God isn't just a good engineer. He's also a great artist. And those two things don't usually go together. Anybody who's ever owned a Motorola telephone, a cell phone knows that um, beauty and engineering aren't really good companions most of the time. When I look at a Motorola cell phone, I think, who, what kind of nerd invented this interface? I, can't, it, I have to take a graduate course just to enter a phone number. I, I don't know how this works. And then the Lord invented things like this through some divinely inspired people, and stuff just works, and it's beautiful. It's as if, you see my bias coming up, but it's as if someone finally got it. Form and function beautifully married together. And it's really hard to make the argument which one of those is more important. Because isn't it interesting, there's a lot of beautiful stuff that stinks, it doesn't work. And then there's a lot of stuff that works well, but you don't want to use it because it's so ugly. There's so little joy in touching it and turning it over. When I first bought my iPhone, I didn't even use it. For the first day, I just touched it. I rubbed it on my stomach. I turned it around. I took pictures of it with my other camera. (laughs) I spent the first day just having a relationship with it. It was very inappropriate. And and it's because I realized this thing makes me want to use it. And then they made the 4S, and it talks to you in a girl's voice. You ask yourself, like, show me where the best Chinese food is. All right, man. And it tells you, and you're like, this is too much. It makes me want to engage it, not just because it's useful, but because it's beautiful. See, most people who are into function would regard beauty as a design flaw, as an inefficient waste of energy and resources. They couldn't be more wrong. Because ultimately what draws us in so much of the time is the beauty of a thing, not just its utility. I want you to consider this. God makes the earth. Do you guys, you guys know that earth, right? When you look at it? Do you realize until the 1960s, no human eyes ever saw how beautiful our planet looked? 
We had no idea what it looked like from out there. You know these globes where, that are like blue and green and all that? We imagined it, but do you realize nobody until the 60s actually saw that? So for the first, you know, tens of thousands to millions and billions of years, depending on your origin cosmology, who was that view for? Who's enjoying the beauty of Earth from outer space? I mean, I, I know that in, in uh, New Mexico... Um, they're building Spaceport America. It's pretty much constructed. Richard Branson is starting Virgin Galactic. Talk about hubris and ambition, man. This guy's like starting the first space travel company. They've already collected $50 million in deposits for about a quarter of a million dollars. You can fly up to outer space, check that view out, and come back down. But until just like 40, 50 years ago, it was God alone looking at that and enjoying it. And that really speaks to me, that he shared it with us finally. He's like, you know what? It's too good. I'm going to give those monkeys space flight. They're going to come up here. They're going to be like, dang. Our planet is really pretty from up there. You get down here. It's a little ugly. But from up there, dang. And God's like, see? I was enjoying it for all this time by myself. Now you see. It's like he's sharing it with us. And what he's trying to say is creation isn't just useful, it's also beautiful. Wait, what is the function of food? Someone tell me. Yeah. This man fed me about 18 pounds of meat and, and grease today, and it was delicious. And right before I came to preach, I was so dang sleepy till we started singing. I literally thought I was going to pass out. Now, what was it that kept me shoveling those poor little baby chicken's body parts into my mouth? Right, for every two wings, one animal's got to give its life. Do you think I was going, mm, I'm running low on uh, metabolic nutrients I need? <laughs> Do you think I was just shoveling that stuff in because I needed fuel? No, my reserve tank is just fine. I, I don't need fuel. I couldn't stop eating that sauce. It's got crack on it. Some, I just kept eating it. I'm like, what is this? I think it's drugs. Wings of winter gardens. Drug dealers, I'm telling you. <laughs> Drug dealers. I'm calling the DEA on you. Now, that's what keeps you shoveling those things in your mouth. Oh, you're not going, this is so nutritious. Mm. You're saying, it's so good. When you see a filet mignon cooked perfectly, medium, medium rare, and next to it is a tall glass of good wine, and you just start going, ah, Jesus, you love us. <laughs> and when you eat it, you're not thinking about metabolic nutrients. You're thinking, just like Cypher on the Matrix, I know it ain't real, but I don't care. Why is this so good? That's part of what makes us engage our world. Aren't you glad that we don't just have one tune and we just change the lyrics like six times? How much would that suck? Here's praise time. You guys know the tune. Just got new words this week. Aren't you so happy that the tunes change? I am. 
And I think that's part of what God's trying to teach us is, is this diversity, this beauty. It's part of what makes things actually useful because you will use them when they're beautiful. And yet, especially, I think, in the Asian church and in the Asian culture, we have really discouraged the frivolous, wasteful excess of artistic expression. You want proof? Why don't you go and tell your parents, hey, uh, I decided what I'm going to do in college. I'm going to major in Eastern poetry. <sighs> parents are like, shut up. <laughs> Why don't you first get your MBA and then write poetry all you want as a hobby? Am I not right? How many of you told your parents you're going you're gonna to grow up to be a timpani player in the Philharmonic Orchestra? It's not going to fly because it's as if art is wasteful, business is practical. And even though we're like, oh, it's dumb first-generation people, they don't get it, do the same thing. You wait till your kids are like, Mom, I'm going to be a performance artist. I'm, I'm going to weave baskets for a living oh, over my dead body. You have no, any idea how hard we work to send you to those schools? You're going to do what? Uh-uh. Doctor, lawyer, business. That's it. Pick one. Well, if you don't pick one, at least marry one. Don't, don't make me mad talking about I'm, gonna, I'm just going to express and create. and No. Try telling your parents you want to be a rapper. When you get out of the emergency room, I'm sure you have a different career objective. Do you see that the culture we sometimes build squashes the importance and value of beauty. Just sit in a board meeting at a church sometime and say, you know what? I feel like what we need to do is put some beautiful artwork on the walls. How much is it? I don't know, like maybe $250, $300 per frame. I think it would be, why do we need it again? We don't need it the way you think, but we need it. We have art hanging all over the walls of our ministry center. Very expensive framed pictures and stuff and we do it because when people walk in they go oh that inspires me i like looking at that we have a massive 125 gallon tank in our in our office next to the other massive 75 gallon tank and they're filled with crazy south american cichlids and we throw in minnows and watch them devour these things and those fish are the delight of my work day do we need them no but every time I walk past them, I just go, this is awesome. It makes me want to be here. I think it's cool. It's a wonderful way to take a break and look at stuff God made, eating other stuff God made. <laughs> Something about it, I enjoy it. And it makes me want to be there. Now, it can go too far. You can worship form over function. You can become addicted to beauty for cleverness sake and have no real point to it. But I think that's not our potential error here. I think our potential error is to go far the other direction and say everything not necessary is sinfully wasteful. How do we know what's necessary? I think beauty is necessary. And I think beauty deserves investment. I think it's good for this church to promote and encourage those with an eye for beauty to put their touch on everything. And if you're one of those people, beautify everything beautify the world. Don't be discouraged. Don't be repressed. Make all of this beautiful.
I really like your church building. Because it's not like most predominantly Korean church buildings I've been to, where people donate the stuff that they're too lazy to sell in garage sales. They're saying to the church here, can you throw it away? Um, can you tell my wife to give me permission to buy a new one because I gave it to you? You know, you know that, that whole thing? This place is nice. I mean, I've been to some Korean churches where the urinals are removed from the wall and stacked against another wall while they're renovating. I'm like, that's just gross. That's just not acceptable. Why would anyone do that? Beauty matters. It doesn't matter supremely, but it matters far more than we realize. And I think that God delights in beauty. So I'm going to sum it all up to say, if God made you especially in tune with this capacity and desire to be creative, then I pray that you will find an outlet to let that out. There's a guy in my church, this big Scottish-American guy. He's got this gift for art, but he's a computer programmer by training. And he's a neighbor of mine. He comes to my church, has been for years. And I'm like, you know, Keith, you're really good at drawing. I feel like we should let you use that gift. But here's what. He grew up on Frank Miller graphic novels. He loves zombie stuff. He just It's all very dark. I asked him once to draw me a picture of Jesus, like a man looking into a mirror and seeing Jesus reflected back, and Jesus looked ticked off. It scared me. So I was like, I'm like, you know, maybe you can't draw for us. Because there's just something, you know what I mean, like very dark, gothic-looking about all his work. But then I undertook this, the, the most ambitious preaching series in the history of the church, 100 Things You Should Know from the Bible. I assembled basically the highlight reel of the Word of God, and I did a three-and-a-half-year series called 100 Things You Should Know. I don't ever recommend you try anything like that. But the idea I had, I just felt God downloaded this to my brain, is talk to Heath, and every week, Walk around the neighborhood, get a little exercise, and talk about your sermon and commission a unique drawing for every sermon. So that while I preach with words, he preaches with a visual image that will somehow capture the feeling of where I'm trying to take that sermon. And he loved that idea. We, we really grew in our friendship during those long walks talking about my sermon. Those talks helped me develop a better speech and helped him get a much better picture. And I want to show you some of the pictures, because he was for years frustrated that there was no way for him to use his God-given talent to give glory to God. Here's some of what he did. If I, uh, he didn't do that. This is creation, and I, I try to describe the swirling of elements and this mystical forming of something out of nothing. This is the fall, where it didn't just cause mankind to die, but it touched and killed everything in creation. Cain and Abel, and you can't see it in the slide, but every time blood was involved, that was the running theme is the redemptive history story and how blood was a symbol of God rescuing humanity. So whenever there was blood, he was permitted to use vivid red ink and make the blood shine. So that blood on his hands. No koala bears and a, a cuddly old man on a boat with animals. This is the story of the flood. Millions of people drowning, dying, holding their babies above the water level for as long as they could before those babies died. That's the stark story of the flood. That's where I was going with that message. And then when I saw this picture, I, I actually didn't know what the picture was going to look like till Saturday night. He emailed it to me, and I would just sometimes go, <gasps> I'd see it, I'd gasp. The Tower of Babel. 
the calling of Abraham. Somebody Googled our website and found this in, in Denmark and asked us to buy it so that he could use it in a youth curriculum. So he's getting some press even beyond our little church. God's promise to Abraham, seeing all the stars in the sky and his descendants would be that numerous. The testing of Abraham, the Passover, the angel of death, the Ten Commandments. This is getting a little more to his style. I don't know why it's going to be lightning shooting out of the eyes. Um, this is my favorite. I thought actually about getting this tattooed to my shoulder. <laughs> David and Goliath, when our congregation, and we have family style worship, little children, three years old saw this, they all gasped together because that's the story. That rock didn't just bury itself. He goes, ugh. It exploded his cranium and bloodshed. You know how he did that blood? He took a, a red a paintbrush and he just went like that. Blood splatter, like Dexter. He just. When I saw that, I was like, dude, I'm so glad you're drawing these pictures for us. The wisdom of Solomon. Ezra reads the law, the suffering servant in Isaiah. And so on. Valley of Dry Bones, he's like, can I please just do zombies for that? Because that's technically what it is. And I'm like, skeleton soldiers, go for it. <laughs> he really enjoyed himself. This is repentance. Turning away from the darkness. The temptation of Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000. <laughs> that one made me laugh. The message of the cross. That one, he ran out of red ink. I mean, just covered it. If you saw the original, it was pretty amazing. The resurrection of Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, the transfiguration, the great commission, becoming bodybuilders. This is all different shapes and sizes, building the body together. And this one was spiritual battle and the armor of God and how he has equipped us to be victorious. That should go on the gas tank of a motorcycle, I think. And it's that cool. And, and the reason I'm showing these to you is this guy for years said, God put this in me, but the church has no use for it. I'm like, well, we didn't before because I was in my warm and fuzzy season, but I'm going graphic and dark on this series. I don't want to hold back the true story that through death and blood and redemption and sacrifice, God redeemed us. And that's what we did. We went for it, and he went for it, and together I feel like it made for a much stronger sermon series. And he found his outlet. He found a way to be creative in a way that didn't distract or discourage anybody. But it made all of my sermons come to life. And we're now talking quite seriously about moving from our lease space to maybe having a permanent home of our own as a church. And when we do, there's going to be one large hall where it's just going to be lined left to right with all 100 illustrations framed well. He's, he drew all of them on moleskin sketchbooks that were giant so that we're going to get the original drawings, frame all of them, and it's going to be remembrance for all the, the ones who walked with me through the series of what God taught us through his word. And that's the kind of encouragement I want to give you. Some of you are wondering, honestly, is there anything I can do for the glory of God? I don't know how to preach or play music, but everything I touch in business turns to gold. I just get how stuff works. I fix things. I don't know. Maybe you got something in you. I think God wants to unleash it for his glory. Never limit what God could do through you. And I hope that speaks to some of you, and not in some vague theoretical way, but in a way where I hope that as we pray tonight, as you go home, something will begin churning in your spirit. 
and God won't let it settle down until he gets what he wants from your life. Amen? I know it was long. We're done. I want to just ask you to bow with me. Let's just spend some time praying. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer response, and I'll turn it over to your pastor. I am so grateful for the kind of father we have. And I know that's a difficult sentence for some of us to hear because the earthly father we had was really challenging for some of us. It's hard for some people to think fondly about their own dads. But what brings us together in this room is that we all share one awesome heavenly father. And the more we get to know him, the more we love and respect him, the more we want in our lives to bear the image of our Father. And one of the things that marks our Heavenly Father is that out of nothing, he loves making good things. He's doing that here at Harvest Church. There was a time when this congregation was not. And now look at the beauty and the impact and the life change that is happening because of this church. And some of you already, God's using your business, your talents, your knowledge, your money, your time, your imagination to bring great glory to him. I'm so thankful for your praise team, for the amazing talents God gave some people with music. And you're doing it already, and you're beginning to see our Father is awesome. I feel so proud to say that I'm his kid, that his imprint is all over me. And if I submit to him, I'm going to start looking like him more and more all the time. And with that hope-filled thought, why don't we just go to God in our own voice and let's just respond to him, whatever he's laid on your heart to say back to him. If you want to just keep listening, that's great. But maybe some music to play. Let's just go to him for just a few minutes and respond to what he's been saying to us. Okay, let's pray.